Researchers at the University of Toronto published data in 2006 that suggests that people experience a powerful urge to wash themselves when suffering from a guilty conscience. They actually tested that. It's called the Macbeth effect, after the Shakespearean play, of course. In order to study the effect, researchers asked volunteers to think about immoral acts they had committed in the past, shoplifting, betraying a friend, whatever. The volunteers were then offered an opportunity to clean their hands, to go and wash their hands. Simple act. According to the results of the study, those who had retraced their sins jumped at the offer at twice the rate of study subjects who had not imagined past transgressions. The Macbeth effect. But guilt is a powerful force, isn't it? Guilt works hard on us. We want cleansing. We want to wash away the stains of those past sins that fill our memories with guilt. Guilt drives people to seek help from priests, for example. But Hebrews 8, where we pick up this morning in our study, Hebrews 8 tells us that there is only one priest who can wash away the stains of sin from our souls, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, a servant in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. The author of Hebrews has been building his argument for the supreme priesthood of Jesus Christ in the last chapter. Now in verse 1, he comes to the very heart of the matter. The main point of everything that has been said, the the crowning point is what he is talking about here, to what has been said is that we have such a high priest. Such a high priest is what? Well, drop back to chapter 7, which we looked at last Sunday. Chapter 7, verse 25. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the kind of high priest we have. And verse 28, which we looked at last Sunday. Because the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, who are sinful, you see. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So we have a perfect high priest who now lives in heaven to intercede for us, as we've just sung in the hymn that we completed. And that's why he can save us then forever. No human priest can ever do that. No human priest can give us that kind of hope. No human priest can absolve our sin. Only Christ can do that. 
And He is the high priest who will advocate for us no matter what we have done or what guilt stains our hands and pollutes our souls and shames us. We can draw near to God through Jesus Christ and He will wash away the stains of sin that we can never clean up. And when we have sin on our hands and guilt in our hearts, then we approach God's throne, verse 1. We come to God in His heavenly sanctuary. And we have this fear that God is going to judge us for what we have done. For we have sinned, we have failed many times. We certainly deserve His judgment. But when we approach God's throne, verse 1 tells us we find ourselves before God's throne and we see our advocate, Jesus Christ. And he is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the throne of his majesty, right there before us. He is our great high priest. After he died and rose again, Jesus sat down then at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. No priest in the Old Testament ever, ever sat down while serving in the tabernacle. Very important point that he is making here. No priest ever sat down in the tabernacle. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. For a priest's work was never finished. He was always at work in the tabernacle, always cleansing, always representing the people to God, performing the rituals that God had ordained. They were never done Because sin was an ongoing reality and cleansing was always incomplete. Jesus sat down. Why? His priestly work was done. It was finished. It was complete. He was, as somebody had said, the atone maker. He had made atonement. And he could sit down because unlike other priests, he was finished with his work for us. That means something very important. We never have to worry. We never have to fear that our sin is too great for God's sacrifice. Sometimes I hear people say, well, God won't forgive me. If you knew what I've done in the past, you would know that I can't go to God. My sin is too great. I've done too many awful things. I've messed up my life too bad. Well, if my sin is too great, then Jesus' sacrifice is too small. That's what we're really saying, isn't it? To say that God won't forgive you because you have sinned too greatly is to say that Christ's work as high priest is not enough. It is inadequate. It is insufficient. Christ has failed to provide adequately for you. If your sin is unforgivable, that means Christ is a failure. Do you really want to say that? I don't think so. Christ is seated beside the throne in heaven because his work is completed. It is finished. No matter what you've done, it is sufficient. And as long as you come to God, as long as you draw near to God, chapter 7, verse 29, 25, through Jesus Christ, then you will find true cleansing for sin. So we approach God's throne, and then the text says in verse 2, in a spiritual tabernacle, not in a physical one. 
The language, of course, is drawn from the book of Exodus in the time of Moses. Jesus is our high priest in the holy place. Literally, I think we're really referring here to the holy of holies in the true tent, the true tabernacle in heaven. You remember that God instructed Moses to erect a tent where he would meet with his people in the wilderness. The tent, the tabernacle, that's what the word means, had two rooms inside of it. That's all. Two rooms inside the main courtyard, of course. There was the holy place where the priests performed their daily ministry for the people. And then there was the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctuary, where the high priest entered only one time a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. And inside the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat between the two cherubim. The mercy seat was not a place where the priest would sit. It was the place where he met with God. It was the Holy of Holies. And he would take the blood from the altar, from the sacrifice, and he would bring it into that Holy of Holies, and he would, before the mercy seat, sprinkle the blood as atonement was made for the sins of the people. He would meet with God as the representative of the people in the nation of Israel. Here we learn in Hebrews that Jesus Christ enters that inner sanctuary, the true tabernacle, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2. He does not mean true as opposed to false. The Old Testament tabernacle was not false. God had ordained it. He had prescribed all that was done in the Old Testament tabernacle. It was not false. But we mean here true in the sense of genuine or real tabernacle. The Mosaic tabernacle was not the real thing. It was a copy. It was a place where God met with his people on earth, but the real Holy of Holies was in heaven, in God's throne room. This was God's heavenly location. The heavenly Holy of Holies was made, we're told here, not by man. Man didn't pitch any tent in heaven. God pitched the tabernacle in heaven. God pitched the Holy of Holies. And it is in the heavenly or spiritual sanctuary that Christ entered and sat down at the right hand of the Father. In the real or genuine tabernacle, of which the earthly tabernacle was but a copy, as we'll see in just a minute. So, we can approach God's real throne in heaven, His spiritual tabernacle, on the basis of a permanent sacrifice, verse 3. The Levitical priests offered sacrifices for the people. The sacrifices were of two general kinds. They were gifts and they were offerings. And he's already discussed that back in chapter 5 and verse 1, where, where if you turn there we read, For every high priest taken from among men, chapter 5 verse 1, is appointed on behalf of men. See, he represents men to offer uh, in things per- pertaining to God, that is to represent them to God, in order to offer both gifts and offerings or sacrifices for sin. So the gifts were the voluntary offerings in the Old Testament. People would bring these sacrifices 
grain offerings and other sacrifices to the tabernacle voluntarily. They were expressions of worship, expressions of praise, thanks to God for what he had done for them. And then there were the offerings of the sacrifices for sin. These were mandatory offerings. These were what you had to bring to atone for your sin that you had committed in life. And the Old Testament high priest offered both the gifts to God, the praise, the worship, the thanks, and he offered the mandatory sacrifices for sin. What about Jesus? If Jesus then is our high priest, he too must offer sacrifices, right? To God on behalf of his people. That's what a priest does. So Jesus must have done it as well. And he did. Chapter 7, verse 27. Who does not need, that is Jesus, does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice was different. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. He was not a sinful person. He was perfect. So unlike the Old Testament priests, he didn't have to offer sacrifices to cover his own sins. Furthermore, his sacrifice was permanent. It was done once and for all. He didn't have to offer it again and again and again and again. It was done once and for all time. Because he, his sacrifice, which was himself was sufficient for all time and for all eternity. His sacrifice could cover the sins of all humanity for all eternity. It was an infinite sacrifice, for he is God. The author will go on to develop the theme that Christ's sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can actually cleanse then the conscience from sin. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ more as opposed to the blood of bulls and goats. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? No human priest can do that for you. Not one. No high priest in Israel could do that for them. Christ alone could give himself as the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. And having offered himself then, he came to the heavenly tabernacle and he sits beside the throne of God and he intercedes constantly for us, having already paid for everything. His wounds pay for our sins. And Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. In 1863, during the Civil War, General Stonewall Jackson was accidentally shot by his own troops. His body was laid in the Capitol in Richmond, Virginia. For two days before his funeral at his home Presbyterian Church in Lexington, tens of thousands of mourning Confederate people crowded into the Capitol building to look on their beloved leader, for one last time. And as the sun was setting on the last day of the viewing, the marshal gave orders for the great doors of the Senate chamber to be closed. And just before the gates were finally shut, a rough-looking Confederate veteran in tattered gray uniform pushed his way forward, tears streaming down. 
his cheeks, demanding to see General Jackson's body. The marshal in charge was about to turn this, this old veteran away when suddenly the old man lifted up the stump of his right arm cut off, stump only. And he cried out, By this right arm which I gave for my country, I demand the right of seeing my general one more time. The governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia happened to be standing nearby. He ordered the marshal to let the vet in. He said, He has one entrance by his wounds. He has one entrance by his wounds. We can't demand entrance, the right to enter God's presence on the basis of our wounds. But we have the right to enter God's presence on the basis of His wounds. What He has done for us. Because Jesus Christ has won entrance for all of us on the basis of His wounds. And when we draw near to God through Christ, then Christ seated there at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, says, Yes, by my wounds suffered for you, I demand the right for you to come before God's throne and stand forgiven. I demand that right for you by the wounds I have suffered for you, Jesus says. He has won entrance for us by his wounds. And for that reason... Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Chapter 8, verse four, verses 4 through 6. Lutheran theologian Dale Bruner was giving Bible studies in the morning at a week-long Lutheran pastor's conference. And in the evening, Dr. Prasanna Kumari a lovely Asian Indian woman was giving the evening platform addresses at the Lutheran Pastors Conference. Dr. Kamari was the president of the Lutheran Church in India and the executive director of the Theological Commission of the Lutheran World Federation. In the mornings, Dr. Bruner was teaching on John chapter 1. The theme that he was teaching on, as, as is the theme throughout the book of the Gospel of John, is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. Dr. Kamari was teaching in the evening that indeed Christ is the way for the Christian. But, she added, in India a sincere Hindu could also go to God, and a Buddhist could come to God their own way. The ordinary way of salvation is sincere devotion to one's own religious tradition, she would argue. The extraordinary way of salvation is Jesus Christ. As long as people are sincere, she said, they can get to God or to saving truth as they understand it. Dr. Dale Bruner felt he was caught in a very difficult situation as the morning speaker... And Dr. Kamari is the evening speaker, and they were obviously going in two totally different directions at this conference. And all week long, he wrestled with this inclusive, exclusive issue. And this was the conclusion he shared with the conference on the last morning. These are his words. 
that he shared with that conference. In the past, he said, when asked what my theological position was, I have described myself as a Christocentrist. But now I realize that that is not an adequate answer. I am a Christo-exclusivist. Dr. Kumari is absolutely Christ-centered. She loves the Lord Jesus Christ, no questions about it. But I have come to realize this week that Christ is not only the center, he is the circumference. He is the only way to the responsible knowledge of or participation in saving truth. Christ is exclusive. Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about that theme. Christ is not just the center. He is the circumference of all Christianity. Everything that is Christian is inside of Christ. He is exclusive. And as we go through these next chapters of Hebrews, we are going to see the author of Hebrews hammering home that theme. It's not a popular theme today, is it? People don't like the idea that Christ is exclusive. And so people want to be respectful of Christ. They want to even say that they center on Jesus Christ. He is the center of their lives. But is he the circumference? Is he everything? See, that's the question, isn't it? He's going to develop that theme in the next few chapters, but here in verses 4 through 6 then, he introduces that theme. Look at verse 4. Now, if he, that is Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when... He was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on the basis of better promises. Jesus is the way to God. He is the go-between between us and God. There is no other way to God but through the mediator. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one. There's only one. The Greek word translated mediator was a commonly used business term in the first century. It was used of a person who was an arbitrator or a go-between in a business transaction. That is, the two parties of that contract would have a go-between, a middleman. Somebody who would negotiate for this party and this party, bring the two parties together and get them to sign the contract. The middle person, the go-between, the mediator. He could represent both sides. Moses may have been the middleman for the old covenant, which we will be contrasting in these next two chapters. The priests were the mediators for the old contract. But Jesus Christ is the only mediator for the new contract, the new covenant. He is the middleman between us and God. 
The author of Hebrews develops then that contrast between the old contract and the new contract. But first he teaches us that earthly worship is a copy of heavenly worship. What is really important is what is not seen. That's what he's trying to get through here. If Christ were serving on earth, he says, he wouldn't even be a priest at all. Why? He wouldn't fulfill the qualifications of the priesthood. Those qualifications were established under the law, which stipulated that a priest had to be born of the the lineage of Levi, of the household of Aaron. Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, so he wouldn't qualify to be high priest under the Mosaic law. But this Old Testament system is not the real thing. It was but a copy or a shadow of the real heavenly worship and the heavenly temple where Christ is our high priest. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians as he does this and contrasting the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with the New One. We learn here that the paraphernalia of the tabernacle then, those things were just copies or shadows of something much more real than those physical objects. We have to come to realize that the spiritual world is more real than the physical. That's hard to grasp, isn't it? This seems real. This seems... Is that real? (laughs) Those things seem real, don't they? This is not. (laughs) Those things seem real. The physical world seems so real to us, but the spiritual world is actually the real world. For that is the world where God dwells. And so, Jesus Christ is the high priest in that heavenly world, not in this earthly world. And worship on earth. What we do as we gather here, well, it's not really the real thing ultimately. All we do here is a copy, a shadow of what is coming in eternity. It's a shadow of the real thing. Heavenly worship casts its shadow on earth as we worship God together. This is not what it's all about ultimately. When we get to heaven, we will see what it is all about. And I can tell you what, what it most certainly is not all about, and it's not all about me, and it's not all about you. It's not about our issues. It's not about our problems. It's not about our struggles. It's about Him. That's what worship is. So we are learning now to worship God, which is the highest priority of every believer in every church, because we will spend eternity worshiping Him in the real thing, in the heavenly worship. So God told Moses on Mount Sinai to build a tabernacle according to God's specifications where the people would worship God. What we learn here is that all that earthly stuff that God told Moses about was built on a heavenly model. Moses was not just told what to do when he built the tabernacle. He was shown a model, the text says, of what he was to build. The Greek here is very, very specific, but it is actually taken from Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. God told Moses to see what he was going to build. In other words, it was not just what Moses was to listen to the instructions about it. It wasn't just that God was laying out the instructions and he was to listen to them. He was to see what he was to build. 
to build. He could actually see what it would look like. He was to make all of these things according to a pattern which was not merely told to him but was, and the Greek is very specific, was shown to him on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. He was caused to see it. Actually the Hebrew in, Hebrew, in, in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40 is a phrase that says Moses was caused to see the tabernacle on Mount Sinai. So it would seem that Moses was to build a replica of what he actually saw on the mountaintop. What that means is we're really not sure. It's a mystery. Some suggest that Moses was caught up to the third heaven like Paul in the New Testament and actually saw the heavenly tabernacle where God is worshipped in reality and that he was supposed to then replicate that on earth. Others think that God had a nice little scale model for him there on the top of Mount Sinai. See, Moses, this is what I want you to build. But either way, the point is that what Moses built was supposed to replicate what was real, right? The real was in heaven. The real was spiritual. And he was to replicate on earth a model of what was real. That's the point. That means that Jesus Christ is the high priest in the spiritual and heavenly tabernacle is the real thing. And all here is but a replication, a model, a pattern, if you will, of what is real. Therefore, Christ as the high priest of the heavenly temple is a higher high priest than any human high priest, and our earthly worship is a shadow of the heavenly. Michelangelo once said, a true work of art is but a shadow of divine perfection. Real things cast shadows, right? Well, Hebrews teaches us that true earthly worship is but a shadow of divine perfection. All art is but a shadow of divine perfection. Jesus is the mediator of that better covenant, the perfect high priest, because he is the mediator of the real and not the shadow. And secondly, a better covenant is founded on better promises. What are those better promises? Well, the next few chapters are going to be spent explaining those better promises. We will look at the nature of the new covenant in Christ and specifically the promises made through Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, about Christ and the new covenant. But just drop down so that we don't just leave it there this morning. Drop down to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. As we will look at this next Sunday, Lord willing, where we read, For I, God, will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now that's a a better promise, isn't it? It's a better promise than anything in the Old Testament where we come with those sacrifices and we kill that animal on the altar on a regular basis because of our sins. It covers us. But now God says in the new contract that I make with you and all people, I will remember your sins no more. What a great promise. That's the new contract promise. 
that God makes to us. So when you got all that stuff inside of you and that shame and, and you're struggling with the guilt and you, you fear coming to God and you, you finally do go, go to God and, and he says, well, in Jesus Christ, it's already paid for. It's already washed clean. You don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't even remember. What was that you're bringing to me? See? I remember it no more. Don't hold it against you any longer. Marjorie Holmes wrote, One day while I was grieving over some past failures I had done, I received a letter from a friend who told me how she and her granddaughter had been watching a plane skywrite. The little girl was puzzled when the words began disappearing there in the sky, but suddenly piped up, Maybe Jesus has an eraser. In her innocent wisdom, I realized that just as skywriting disappears, Jesus wipes away all things I so bitterly regret. No matter how much we mature as Christians and try desperately to compensate, memories of our own failures can rise up and haunt us. But with God's forgiveness, they'll fade away because Jesus does have an eraser. It's no longer held against us. And those are certainly better promises, aren't they? The Lord never fails. He keeps those promises to you and to me. This is the reality of our new covenant life in Christ. We enjoy the work of God's eraser forever, no longer held against us. So the main point here, as we enter into this section on Christ as the high priest and the new covenant work, And the new life we have in him is that we have a higher high priest. He is our high priest in heaven, not just on earth. He is the mediator of a better covenant with God. What we have in him is a whole new life. And it's a whole new life that lasts forever. And forever is a long time. In 1988... A failed effort at attaching two train cars left Polish railway worker Jan Grebski with massive head injuries. The damage was so extensive that Grebski slipped into a deep coma. And doctors told his wife Gertruda to expect the worst. Gertruda, however, was undeterred by the doctor's opinions concerning her husband's fate. And so she cared for her husband faithfully day in and day out, all through the years, carefully shifting his position in bed every hour, planning meaningful visits from friends, loved ones, family members. Nineteen years later, Jan woke up from his coma. What did he notice after having been asleep for 19 years? Well, the first thing he noticed was his loving wife, whom the doctors say probably is the reason humanly why he came to life again, so to speak, in such good shape. The doctor says he can now move his feet, feeling his return to his limbs. He can hold light objects. If he continues to make such progress, he'll soon be able to walk. 
But besides his loving wife, Grebsky also noticed an entirely different world. Because one year after he went into his comatose state, communism fell in Poland and throughout Europe. Gertrudis says he was amazed to see the colorful streets, the goods. He says the world is prettier now. What a great metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. The world is prettier now. It's a whole new world. For we live under a whole new covenant. With a whole new high priest. Who makes life worth living. We have a whole new life because of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Father, let us praise you and express our praise to you for your Son who has given us a new life, a life we will have forever. In Jesus' name and on his credit, amen. Hymn number 206 as we close this morning.